0: A Pennsylvania addiction medicine doctor works every day to save the lives of her patients.
1: The three outcomes I usually tell people if they're active in their use is, you know, you're going to get arrested and go to jail, you're going to overdose and die, or you're going to figure this out, you know, get
0: to rehab and figure it out. How one patient fell through the cracks in treatment continues to haunt her. In this episode of Grieving Out Loud, we have 25-year-old Philip's story through the eyes of his doctor and his mother. Today, I am joined by Dr. Aviva Forer and mother Kate Kimball, who are going to be telling us Phil's story from two different perspectives, that of a mother and that of his doctor. Unfortunately, we lost Phil at the age of 25 in 2019 to overdose. And this story is really unique in the fact that it really shows the gaps in the medical system when it comes to treating addiction and and the personal toll. This takes not only on family members when someone like this is lost, but also the other people who have tried to help them. So thank you both for being here today.
1: Thank you you. for having us.
0: Kate, I want to start with you uh, as Philip's mom. Tell me a little bit about Philip. And I know you had a long battle um, trying to help with his addiction. Uh, Philip was
2: a shining star in many ways. Um, He had a a beautiful spirit. He loved deeply his family, his friends. Um, And yet he also always, always had a side of him I I would say that perhaps he couldn't accept um, perhaps some of his inadequacies. He never liked to do things unless he could do them sort of masterfully from the outset. Um, And in some ways, he was very hard on himself. And at the same time, he was very capable of masking those feelings of self-doubt and shame.
0: And he was also really an artist musically. I mean, he was gifted, gifted young man.
2: Yes, he was an extremely talented drummer. Um, it was
0: in his in his corpuscles. Um, so many parents I talk to who have lost children to addiction. It's it's the same kind of like story over and over again where like my daughter was an artist, your son was a musician. They're very, you know, left-brained. They're very creative and sensitive souls, don't you think?
2: He was extremely so. Um, You wouldn't know that perhaps off the bat, Aviva. I know you can speak to that. (laughs) Um, He had a bravado. Um, but there were times, you know, through this struggle that he would call me um, in just such despair. And um, it, it was very difficult for him to accept the fact that friends were, you know, sort of moving on in, in more typical ways. Uh, he went to college for a year and decided he didn't want to go back. He he never enjoyed school at all. Um, and I, you know, I remember one call just talking to him about the fact that he's basically needs to subtract ten years from his age. And because he started using, a, because he started yeah. using
0: substances. At what age did he start using?
2: Well, I believe around thirteen. or so. I think Uh he started smoking marijuana. Um, And I, you know, expressed to him that there was no shame. It just was what it was, and so figure you're more, developmentally, you know, where you are in your life, more 15. But he he just couldn't ever gain traction. You know, he had successes as a musician, as a, a, in sales, um, managed a store, and he would just sabotage over and over and over again. And he just never could stick with
0: anything. Oh. And uh, Dr. Aviva, how did you come to know Philip then?
1: So he came to see me uh, in February of 2016. I believe he was 21 years old.
2: Because he, he, he withdrew one weekend. He went through mm-hmm. withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, making frantic phone calls and reached mm-hmm. somebody, you know, who put me in touch with you. And then you mm-hmm. saw him like that Monday, I remember mm-hmm. right after. And right.
0: I should, I should mention, um, Dr. Viva, that you're a family practice doctor, but you also specialize in addiction medicine.
1: I actually, Angela. I look at myself the other way. I'm actually, okay. a, I'm an addiction medicine specialist who mm-hmm. happens to also be family gotcha. medicine. Yeah, I well, practice only addiction. Only addiction. Point.
0: Okay. There's mm-hmm. not enough of you out there. I can tell you that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you met Philip, and he was about 21, and he died at 25. So, was was there anything different about Philip? But you, I know you work with a lot of patients who suffer from substance use disorder.
1: Yeah, I. You know, I like. I like to say that everybody has their own unique story and their own unique um, things that brings them to see me, but he really was a fairly remarkable young man. Um, Kate was right. There's, there was something about him, this, um, you know, he was striking looking. He had this kind of cool casual on the outside demeanor. And, you know, as a mom, I could see like the, child inside of him that like hurt child that he would let me get glimpses of every once in a while um and he was amazing his saying which i you know he would say over and over was just keep it moving i'm just going to keep it moving doc and that he would say that to me so often that i found myself using it sometimes you know (laughs) like all right we just got to keep this you just got to keep it moving um there was pretty some pretty remarkable things about him
0: I think that we're all looking for answers, right? I mean, uh, Kate and I lost our children. We can't bring them back. I th- I, would, I would assume that you agree with me, Kate. Like, I don't want any other family to go through what we've been through or to lose, you know, a beautiful child. Philip was your oldest. Emily was my oldest. And yet, saving them. I mean, that's your job, right, Dr. Aviva? <laughs> that's your job. But it's so complicated and so hard to do. What do you think the limitations are right now for doctors and for people in this field?
1: So I, I see my role as not so much as saving them as helping them find their own path. Um, you know, I it's a blessing that I get to do what I do. I I love it and I feel honored to be part of these people's lives that come in to see me. Um, I recognize that it sometimes is. The first time that they've opened up about things and that vulnerability and trust that they place in me, um, I wish that the rest of the medical community could sometimes see people who struggle Mm. with substance use disorder the same way I do. So that would be the first barrier, I would think.
0: How do they need to see them? I mean, what needs to change in people's minds and hearts? Yeah.
1: Uh, What needs to change is if you walk out your door and go down the street and look at the people that you pass, if you go in the supermarket and look at the people that you're walking by, if you go to your child's PTA meetings and you see the parents of the kids that are around you, that you start recognizing that a percentage of those people are struggling with substance use disorder, that most of the people that come to see me are people who have jobs, who have kids, who go on vacation, who have nice cars, who... Um, have these silent seek, you know, who are incredibly attractive and talented and went to good schools and that they are also um, walking and talking and interacting with the rest of us
0: and had parents who loved them. I mean, I think, loved, yeah, you're, uh, that's a great point. Love them and, and
1: were there for them and um, gave them all the opportunities
0: I have to tell you that as someone who is in the public eye um, and who reports on things that can be controversial, people don't always like all of my news reporting and they don't agree or they want to take issue with it. And I'm an easy target now because I went public with my daughter's death. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to take when somebody tries to use that against me and say, oh, well, you've got a problem. Your daughter died you know, of overdose, you're the problem, you know, how dare, how dare you report on this person's death or how dare you do anything that you do because, because you're lacking as a human being. And I don't know, Kate or Dr. Aviva, if you found that to be true, people feel so parents, especially feel so responsible for a child who ends up in in addiction in the throes of addiction.
2: I think, um, yes, I think as, as a parent, it's sort of impossible to avoid, you know, some of those feelings I think by and large, I mean, we, we, for many years, we did, we intervened in so many different ways on his behalf. And I truly believe, I don't think I, I could have done much more, except I do wish I had been more open about it. Um, After he died, I became 100% open about his addiction but as a parent struggling with a child, um, I didn't want to face what you're talking about. It's exactly what I avoided. And I do wonder, Gia, if I had been more open, if I had let more people know, you know, would that have shifted the outcome? That's my primary regret that I let that, you know, the stigma and the shame get the best of me.
0: Well, hopefully by us talking about it now the way that we are, it's changing that in our culture maybe a little bit. I mean, not to the extent we all want to see it, and as quickly as we all want to see it. But but really, um, Dr. Aviva, you were the first one to get Philip into inpatient treatment. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. How did that happen? <laughs> so he'd been seeing
1: me for four, year, uh, four or five years, um, had kind of relapsed, um, a couple of times most notably once was at work it was a pretty dramatic Mm. um seizure that he had that was caught on the close you know the cctv and and at work and was pretty traumatic for him for his father for his mother and for me and it was a real wake-up call and even that wasn't enough to um kind of help him get back on track and I look at addiction and recovery um, as a continuum of care. It's not an on-off switch. You're not cured and done with it or in the throes of it. It's where are you on that continuum? And part of that continuum is uh, residential treatment or inpatient treatment. And that's one part of it that he hadn't tried yet. And we hadn't tried yet. And he was pretty resistant to it. And he had come to see me and i knew he had been using i could tell by just the changes as i'm sure both of you and i think
2: i think you also got a message from his dad perhaps that he that he he had relapsed or right? some there that he recognized that philip was taking
1: things to sell oh correct right so his father yeah. reached out to me and said he had taken some things which also is mm-hmm. kind of Education. clear that he's he's nice. looking for money but he it kind of culminated in both Kate and his dad and Philip coming t- to my office and me wanting to sit down and talk to him and kind of confront him. And I'm not a, a real hard line, um, tough love doc. That's not how I usually work with my people. And I don't find that that works, but um, with him, it became a matter of life and death, especially because one of the substances he used when he would relapse was benzodiazepines and they could be really dangerous. If you stop them suddenly it could cause seizures and death. We had this culmination of a a session in the office where he stormed out the window. And I'm actually sitting in the office looking out the window right now. And I pulled up the window and like yelled at him in the parking lot, which I've never done
2: And before. we were there. There was sort of like mm-hmm. a planned intervention.
0: Mm-hmm, I remember. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. And For, so he, he it was in the, in the right. And he mm-hmm. had he had a response I think that many people who are suffering from this have. And it's like, well, you're not going to take this away from me. No, I'm, I'm out of here. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. Right. I mean, isn't that typical? Yeah. And he
1: said, you know, I'm here on my own willingly. Um, and I don't have to listen to this and he walked out the door and I probably used a little more colorful language than <laughs> I would like to admit. Um, I, you know, I remember he like yelled back at me like, what kind of doctor does that? And in my head, I'm like, I'm not, I really felt like I'm not a doctor. I'm a mom right now. Like I, need to help you stay alive. I mean, I just felt that drive and it culminated with his father and he went into his dad's car and um, we talked and I told his dad pretty much like you need to make a decision. He was living with his father at the time. And I said, you either need to kick him out or tell him he needs to go to residential because this is not going to end well. And the three outcomes I usually tell people if they're active in their uses, you know, you're going to get arrested and go to jail. You're going to overdose and die, or you're going to figure this out, you know, get to rehab and figure it out. His father did kick him out and he was gone, I think, for a day. He went overnight. Yeah. yeah. So he left
2: sometime Sunday early evening or something. And at four in the morning, he mm-hmm. was knocking on Art's door and he was just sitting on the front porch like he was cold and he didn't get very far and
1: mm-hmm.
0: said
2: that he would go to rehab. Mm-hmm.
0: And everybody just wants to breathe a sigh of relief, right? Like when they go, they're going to rehab, oh, you know, this is going to do the trick. Um, but you encountered, Dr. Aviva, a lot of um, obstacles after he went into rehab, right?
1: Correct. You know, and I, and I, I want to clarify, so going into rehab and detox is such a critical part of recovery and back to your question earlier another myth that i would like to clear up or to educate people about is it is a part that's critical but it's really important to realize that that's not complete treatment for addiction and it's you know a critical step but not at all um the end-all be-all and people aren't finished when they leave 30 days um yeah. and so yes you know we we i sent him i i got in touch with the liaison and sent him to a local place and then we started encountering the first of problems which was insurance coverage so he didn't have insurance coverage for the local rehab which is in right near us here in philadelphia so they had to look for a place that took his insurance
0: yeah, this is a huge problem um, with addiction. Especially, anybody can hang up a shingle and say they're in addiction treatments, and there's not a lot of regulation of that throughout the country. And then it's um, historically been treated outside of the medical system, and you don't have doctors always screening for it. Or and then there's the insurance issue; like insurance won't pay, or they'll pay very little, or they'll pay for just a short amount of time. They didn't yeah, cover so, thirty days,
1: right? And and Angela it's like 20, I was
0: actually closer to twenty one.
1: Mm-hmm. I think he was there for 21. and Angela, what I want to say is actually 30 days is a completely arbitrary number, right, right, which right. has been created and dictated only by the insurance companies. The data does shows that most people need 60 to 90 days of intensive inpatient treatment to really get their feet on the ground. How do we change that in this country? How do we do that? Scream louder, make Scream do louder. more of. I'm I mean, I think
0: more people need to be touched by it. I think more. Well, Awareness. We have 194 people dying, you know, mm-hmm. every day. And mm-hmm. you sure would think we would want, I mean, if we can figure out how to, you know, come up with a coronavirus vaccine, and I understand that the impact is even greater. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't blame the coronavirus patient for, you know, catching it um, as we do, you know, the person suffering from substance use disorder. Usually we blame the individual or their family or somebody, you know, other than we don't want to recognize it as a disease. And we, I just, I just think we have to, we have to do better. We have to do better. I mean, we're losing a generation of young people and not just, I mean, not just, these are, these are not people who are like scum of the earth or whatever. These are brilliant people that we are losing all of that human potential. And it just, it just infuriates me and frustrates me. And I, we, I don't know how we get, how we get that change to happen.
1: So I think that's a great point. Um, You know, I, it's interesting. I grew up around here. I went to the same high school. Phil went to. I have a 15 year old who's in 10th grade who goes to the same high school. Um, and we were talking about this in the car earlier, just you know, addiction and all of that. And I said to her, "By the time you graduate and get into college, a certain percentage of your classmates mm. will have died and overdosed." And I think back at my wow. experience in the same high school, and I did not know anyone who overdosed and died. And y- you absolutely hit the nail on the head is this entire generation has become decimated and numbed to the fact that their peers are dying and they're going to more funerals than they are weddings. Here's an interesting
2: story. My middle son um, went also to the same high school and somebody, one of the kids had died from I don't remember if it was cancer or had been hit by a car or something. It was a tragic loss, and I don't remember if it was a he or she, but there were sort of announcements. It was a public um, death that allowed for kids to grieve publicly in the school, et cetera, et cetera. Not too, too long after that, another boy had died from overdose. Silence. Yeah. Well, that goes back to the Nothing. stigma, right? Yes. Perpetuating. Perpetuating. not, not worthy
0: of, of acknowledgement because it was addiction. Oh, that's yeah. devastating. So 21 days, Philip had 21 days in this treatment center. And how did things go, Kate, from your perspective? Poorly.
2: It was very difficult to get. Well, initially when Philip went in, he he wouldn't Give permission, I think, for anyone except for maybe his dad, right? Because of HIPAA, as though he was in the right frame of mind to make that decision. So I wasn't able to speak. I could speak to his counselor, but she couldn't really give me any information. And the level of sophistication um, regarding her and her understanding of him, of addiction, it was. Kind of a little shabby, I would say. Um, so maybe that's a little frustrating. Care,
0: maybe the quality of care that you would
2: I, perhaps yes, and um, and one of the first questions I had: Have you been in touch with Doctor Four? Oh uh, no, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. And I don't remember exactly Viva, how long it took, but it was it, it took a while because Philip mm-hmm. wouldn't give permission. Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of
1: collaborative care is that? I mean, didn't you, didn't I mean, you refer the,
0: him? Um, so that's
1: the interesting thing. You're right. And, and this is not the first time that it's happened to me is that as the referring physician, I have a relationship with many of these um, kind of clinical liaisons where I say, Hey, I'm going to send somebody to you. They need to go in ASAP and then they'll do the connection. So they know me, they know of my practice. Yes. I was the referring physician. I sent them there. Indeed, sometimes clients can be really angry, or impaired, or both, and they don't want to put me on that. But there is no. Um, there needs to be more communication as the physician who's been prescribing medications. If they pull up the physician drug monitoring program, they can see that I've been prescribing all of his medications as the person that sent them there. There should be some kind of communication with me. So that was issue number one. Issue number one.
2: Right, and and then to sort of make an assumption that that the patient's decision who has contact and who doesn't is based on anything, all that rational. I mean, they're not in usually in a very great state of mind. Right. It's a disease
0: of the brain. I mean, it's a disease of the brain. And, but, but I mean, I I have these HIPAA laws and everything, but it seems to me like where where does common sense come in to some of this? Right. Yeah.
2: And so any communication, it just always felt, and it's, I, I blocked some of it, I suppose. Um, it was not a great experience, but he, um, the, the staff just never seemed to have a, it, it didn't feel like there was much cohesion um, between staff members, among staff members. And Philip, um, in his, once I was granted permission to speak with him, um, was just angry and griping about how poorly, it was run, and he would always hone in on um, any system's weak links. <laughs> he was yeah. very, very good at that. And so I've sort of learned over the years, too, to sort of, you know, not, not quite take it with a grain of salt, but also to recognize that he's angry, and he needs to sort of target that anger onto the system. But he was actually completely accurate <laughs> um, in, in his assessment. But I um, So in terms of the care itself, it wasn't very good. The discharge planning was disastrous. Um, I did have...
0: Yeah, no, I want to talk about that for a minute because it is really like you get someone into treatment and they're in there, right? I mean, they can leave with their own free will, but let's Mm -hmm. say they last 20 days or 30 days or Mm -hmm. however long. Really, the key uh, to keeping them healthy and alive is the discharge, right?
1: Right. And so if I can jump in just for the middle part, so in a, in a well-run system, the way it should be as any other, any other uh, chronic medical condition is you would expect that you would have some coordination with the person that sent the person there. During the course of treatment, you would have some coordination and communication with that same physician because I'm the one that knows them best. And and to get some input on what I feel is appropriate, you know, treatment, not treatment, and then discharge. So even during the treatment, you know, the detox process, there wasn't a lot of communication because one of the tenets of really good uh, treatment and recovery is medication assisted therapy, MAT. And that's prevent cravings, but also to block people from using, because really the most fragile time people frequently have, surprisingly, is like right when they get out of just, you know, treatment of inpatient, and they've not taken any substances for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, they've lost all their tolerance, but in their brain, which is still active, really in addiction, they think they still have the same ability to use that they used before. And if they go out and use, they will frequently Mm -hmm. overdose. So that is almost more, you know, more critical is to get them set up while they're in there so that the coordination is there when they get out. That safety net. Right. And it was really clear that he,
2: he needed, um, you know, sort of intensive outpatient, a mm-hmm. five day a week, six, eight hour a day program, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was what was recommended. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Insurance wouldn't cover it. Insurance covered three day a week, like two morning,
1: uh, two hours per. Right. So day or levels, yeah. Each? So levels of care would be inpatient, which is living there, staying there. Then what you're referring to, Kate, would be PHP, which is partial hospitalization, partial. which is five. Right. right. So PHP is five days a week. It's about six hours, and that's much more intensive than being at home. That would be the next level, and then an IOP would be the next level down, which is usually three times a week for about an hour and a half. So it goes for hours of treatment, face to face, and then OP or outpatient is the level of care that I do.
0: And what I, happened to Philip after he got out of the treatment center? So I didn't even know he got out. Let's start with that. Back to no communication. I didn't you, know you were actually at a conference on heroin. So I went away.
1: On, yeah, I went. I went to um, a summit in um, Atlanta, a heroin um, and opiate summit, and met some really wonderful women. Um, and it was during that time that Kate called me um, and let me know that he had overdosed um, and died. And you and had, you were, I didn't, actually he was
2: still inpatient.
1: Yeah, I really was. I thought he was still there. And so not only did I not know what was going on with him, I didn't know that they discharged him, I didn't know anything.
2: And I think he he opted not to stay on Suboxone or, or something uh, medication like that, I believe. And they I think they let him make that decision. And they did not include you in that decision or us. It was it was it was
0: bad. It was just bad. Well, let um, down, let down by the system in every way, right? In every
1: way. I mean, in every way. And, and, and really there's, I've said this before, like if you were to show up in an ER with chest pain, any one of us in any ER in the United States, there's really clear protocols in place. If you were to show up with, you know, with COVID symptoms, really clear protocols. And very early on with Corona, there were very clear protocols in place for what to do. We've been struggling with addiction and substance use disorder and opiate use in this country for how many years and still there's no clear protocols about what to discharge a patient on to make sure that a provider is set up for them that's going to maintain the medications, to make sure that family members are aware. If there isn't it's it's I can't so varied.
0: I know I can't believe the number of people I've talked to in my community who've overdosed, been taken to the emergency room, you know, were revived by Narcan and then just let out of the emergency room. Never talked to, never never given any sort of course of treatment. I mean, this happens all the time. And so how, how can we expect these people to recover or, or, or live? The system's against them.
1: <laughs> right. And if you think about it this way, Angela, if you develop diabetes and your pancreas is no longer creating insulin, even if you're overweight, you smoke, you don't exercise, all these other behavioral things that you have choice for, no doctor is going to say to you, well, you know, it's kind of your fault. You've got the diabetes and you're just going to have to figure this out. Yet with substance use disorder, yes, they make bad choices. Most definitely people do some really not good things for themselves. But the basics, the basis of it is their brain is not functioning correctly. They've actually rewired their brain. How, how do we treat those two things so differently? when they're not.
0: Right. I, I use that analogy all the time when I speak, and sometimes people get angry when I use that analogy, but I say, you know, I'm talking about the kind of diabetes that's caused by lifestyle you know, choices, mm-hmm. and I think it's so accurate, and I just think the first time someone chooses to use a substance, that's a choice, the first maybe one or two times, but for a great number of people, after that, it no longer becomes a choice, you know? It depends on if you maybe you have that addictive gene or I don't know, environment, genes, all of those things combined. Three. It's yeah.
1: environment. It's exactly correct. It's environment, it's genes, and it's your hardwiring. So
2: Philip had him. certainly the hardwiring yeah. and he had two uh, paternal uncles who died of addiction.
0: Oh, yeah. I think we, uh, those of us, we certainly on Emily's side of the family, but they've been, you know, on my side and her dad's side, addiction oh. in both. So.
1: And we don't know who's going to be the person that right. does that. The I wish we could also pinpoint has it, two right? siblings. Right. So you yeah. don't know. So is part of it. The kids he hung out with. Is part of it. His wiring. Was he exposed to some, you know, some kind of situation that just changed the way his brain was? Trauma that nobody or had something? control. Yeah. yeah. But nobody had control over. We knew
0: about. Like his those birth are the f- was
2: very traumatic. I honestly, I go back to that. Mm. It,
0: well, so was Emily's. So was Emily's. I was in labor yeah. for thirty-seven hours, and it was a very traumatic mm. birth. Yeah. And isn't that interesting? I thought he was I thought he was dead on
2: delivery. Aww. It was an emergency C-section and I, yeah, it was it was this bad every you know everything that could go wrong did.
0: I'm so sorry about Phil's loss, Kate, and you too, Dr. Aviva. I mean to lose a patient like this. I know you haven't lost very many patients, so you've been fortunate, you know, in that way working in this field. Um what lessons do you think we can learn? You know as a society from what happened in Philip's case?
1: I mean, from my perspective is to never make assumptions about who a person is or what they've gone through when you find out that they're struggling with substance use disorder. I'm seeing more and more of that right now. Uh, COVID has definitely affected people and especially with alcohol use, a lot of people that maybe managed to be functional and, and, you know, carry through life And work and family obligations pre-corona, now it's sort of brought things to the surface with more people being at home, being able to kind of navigate drinking and work. So not to make assumptions. The other one is that we need to advocate more for treatment and for education about it. I'm passionate about education. I really believe that we need to start education when children are young. Um, we need to educate in high school, we need to educate in medical school, and certainly in residencies, um, what substance use looks like. It's not everybody has to do what I do and go into addiction medicine full time. Almost any specialty you go into, they're going to overlap with people who struggle with substance use disorder, and how do they navigate that with um, compassion and kindness. Um that would be the other thing. And I think we just need to put more money into treatment. It's woefully lacking. There is no reason why someone who is um, part of our system and wants to get treatment has to be shuffled back and forth and not even have a full 30-day stay because of the woeful um, shortcomings of the insurance companies and what they're willing to pay for. He's, like you said, it is an entire generation. He is such a great example of an entire generation that's falling into the cracks, not being able to get treatment that they need.
0: Yeah. And it's so hard. We provide um, my charity, Emily's Hope. We provide treatment scholarships, but they're partial treatment scholarships. You know, we're trying to help as many people Mm -hmm. as possible. And it's so expensive. I mean, it's just, it's such a deterrent. I mean, I just, Kate, can you tell me how this whole experience has changed you as a person, knowing Philip, Philip's death? How has that, how has that changed you? I'm sad a
2: lot Um, for sure. I feel like I have a new filter internal and an internal filter so that my experience of the world in any given second, even if it's not conscious, it's filtered through that loss. And I, um, I am definitely um, more, open, less likely to judge, judge myself, judge others. I, it's interesting. I value life. I value the life of my other kids. I feel like, though, as a parent losing a child, I, I don't want this to sound, the way I'm afraid it might, but I'm just going to say it anyway, I place less value on my own life i mean i'm not looking to die i'm not doing anything i'm not suicidal but but it just it just feels less um significant or valuable or something losing a child is i mean it's it's interesting you know i would think about this because um i wasn't a, a huge surprise um i don't want to minimize but um you know i had often thought of Philip dying. And I imagined that I would just never get out from under the covers again. It wasn't that way. I mean, I had a couple of days like that, but I'm amazed, you know, at the same time I play sort of less value. I also am amazed by there is a life force and I step back and and think about it. And it's like, wow, I, I went back to work in 10 days and um, I, stayed open with people I got out of bed I function I you know did what I needed to do for my other kids so I recognize there's a, a strength that I have um, but also there's a an incredible sense of isolation and not just because of COVID that certainly doesn't help but I recognize that in most situations I feel different yeah. The only place I really don't feel different is in a bereavement group, a parent bereavement group that I'm a part of, that um, its members are parents of kids who have either overdosed or who killed themselves. And in those moments, I feel just like everybody else in that group. And I, it's like I can breathe freely and well, I don't the, feel different. Yeah,
0: the human condition is to long for belonging, Right. And, and we really are outsiders as parents who've lost children to overdose. Most parents, thankfully, or more parents experience it now than in any time ever before, but most parents don't experience that. So, so we are outsiders. And I think there's also contradiction in loss and grief, right? There's that contradiction you're talking about, you know, where you think, mm-hmm. well, maybe you should just be under the covers and never being able to, you know, do anything again. But at the same time, you find something inside of you that, that like in my case, I, I want to do this, what I'm doing right now, you know? So mm-hmm. there's, and, and there's the, there's the brokenness and the openness, I think, in mm-hmm. grief.
2: Yes. And I'm mm-hmm. also aware that I, you know, some people will say, oh, you know, I can't wait to stop feeling this way. And I don't experience that. I'm afraid to not feel this way because this is the only way I can connect with my son. And... I can't, um, you know, I, I don't think about happy memories and, you know, I don't put, I, they don't put a smile on my face. I mean, my connection to Philip is through my grief and I, I, I'm certainly not ready at any rate to let go of
0: that. Well, I don't know that we have much of a choice really, quite frankly, I think that maybe the intensity of the pain lessens, but I think that we will always be grieving our lost children.
2: Absolutely, but it's actually it's 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 the uh, the intensity of feeling it. It connects me to him, and I I'm not you know crying every day anymore, and I function, and I can laugh and make yeah. silly jokes and whatnot. But um, but I I I miss him just well. I, there's just no words to express the level of pain and that missing it's just it's bigger than anything i i could imagine um and yet it's like i don't know living in front of a tsunami every day or something it's just it's so big and yet we walk with it
0: all the time right we carry it and you never know when that tsunami might knock you off your feet at any time Mm -hmm. and that happens in grief but uh somehow we carry it. And, uh, and I just want to commend you for talking today, you know, about what happened and about Phil and um, that takes courage too. And Dr. Aviva, I just wondered if there's any thoughts that you wanted to leave us with as well. My biggest wish
1: would be for our society, you know, as a whole, and then down to like our communities, our neighborhoods, our families, um, and the individuals to really see substance use disorder for what it is and recognize all the different aspects of it, you know, seeing both of you and hearing both of you talk about your losses and your children, and to recognize that this isn't something that happens to people different than me. And this isn't something that can't ever happen to me and that it can touch all of us. And, um, how universal that is. It's, um, people who struggle with substance use disorder have much more in common with each other and with with others than we realize and I and and that to me is like the biggest I have students in here all the time I have uh, nurse practitioner students and um, medical students and residents who rotate and Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what field they're going into and I do it because I want to open up people's eyes and that is something I get back all the time is like oh my god and hearing the way I talk to them and hearing like know the conversations we have they're always surprised by what it is when they think about what addiction medicine is and what it looks like and what addicts look like um it's so different when then you come down and sit and talk to somebody
0: well they look like emily and phil and exactly millions of other people right and And me and you (sighs) yeah that's the point yeah you know They look like all of us. And there's so much collateral damage in these losses. That's what I think about a lot Mm -hmm. lately. You know, it's not just... Just my grief, but my children's and, you know, Emily's stepdad and her father and, and, and your, your grief is that you, I mean, you're a human being. I mean, I understand your role a little bit because as a journalist, when I'm covering stories and talking to other people's about, about their stories, you know, there's always this uh, separation, right? And as you try to maintain that professionalism, but we're still human beings. And I know, I know you do that as a doctor, but you love Phil too.
1: I'll be honest with you. I've said this to patients frequently, um, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, I'm paying you and, and this is your job and I'm paying you to do this. And that's true. This is my job. And I do get paid for this. That's what um, he said to you. Yeah. <laughs> and what I said back is you don't pay me to care. You know, I, I care. And, and that you, you know, people intuitively know that they know when you care. And that's something that I give and do freely and lovingly. I mean, I do, I, it's, <laughs> Well, just That's thinking about
2: Philip. I've, t- I've told you this, you know, Philip. I mean, we had a good relationship, all things considered, and he would share things with me. And you know, he would tell me about a session he had, and he would just say, like, oh, I'll,
1: well, go ahead, say it.
2: <laughs> <the> fucking <laughs> doctor far, fucking blah blah. She blah 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 blah. And he would bitch and bitch
1: coming back. And
2: then, like the next week, oh man, she is awesome. She's the best. She, which is you know how he felt about me too. He's like he was yes, black or right. white, right?
0: And, and and Emily but, was very much that way too. She'd she'd either you know whatever. She's right. angry at me because I was trying to intervene with her use, you know, and right. Yeah. But, but
2: I want to say too to come back full circle. Um, it was so meaningful and is so meaningful to know and to hear from Aviva how much Philip meant to her Um, and that she could share that with me and her sadness with me. It just, it honors him in a way. And it, it, uh, it speaks volumes to the work that she does. And yes, we need more of you. (laughs) Um, And that, you know, she was at the service and um, stayed in touch and, and I gave, I gave her one of Phil's t-shirts and
1: which I wear. Oh, I do. Really? <laughs> it's like my come home and get comfy shirt. I have a couple. Aww. I wear it all the time. <laughs> Thank you. He thanks you. <laughs> I no, it's true. I mean, it's, um, we started this conversation talking about coincidences. You know, I, i really don't believe in them, but I do. I think we're touched by people in our lives and, um, Sometimes we don't know what lessons we're going to take. And I mention him, I don't say who he is, but here in sessions, I'll say, listen, I've lost people and they've fallen through the cracks and they've ended up, you know, not here anymore. And I don't want that to happen to you. I mean, I, I will, that's, that loss also fuels me, you know, to, to, to hopefully help one other life and one other mom not have to lose her son or daughter. And
2: in another lesson to be learned too, um, you know, I never heard, they knew the facility knew that Philip died and I never heard boo from them. And that was very painful, oh. you know, it just as though he was just, you know, you know, patient ID, eight, two, four, five, three, or something like that, right. you know, never heard from him that. And that, that I, I have not resolved that I'm anger. I'm sorry.
0: I'm sorry to hear that because even the the facility we were going to bring Emily to, we were planning this intervention and I had, you know, cleared the insurance and we had, they had a bed for her and she didn't know, you know, what we were doing. The people from that facility came to Emily's funeral. So I I, I had an opposite oh, kind of experience. Yeah. You and I'm sorry that, you know, it's, he's it's, someone's son and you know, someone's brother and I mean, I still,
2: you know, sort of fantasize about making a phone call and I haven't done it. I,
1: but as a facility that this is their job, that is, a, that, I mean, I'm still, I don't refer to them anymore. Oh, you don't? No. I mean, yeah. you know,
2: if we have an animal that dies, we hear from the animal hospital. You know, they send a car, they, they're they kinder I, at the animal hospital and more well, it, You
0: know what would be the, mo- the best thing that could happen is that this facility would change some of its practices in light of what happened with Phil. I so mean, to
1: tie that up, we, they were supposed to, and they put me in, because I did a real deep dive dissecting how this happened and spent a lot of time and energy trying to track down and get copies of notes and all of that. It was incredibly frustrating. I even talked to somebody pretty high up and at the end they were going to establish protocols, and they asked me if I wanted to be part of it, and I heard nothing after that, and and to me, that is such an absolute lack of back to compassion and caring. It's a business, and they do really well, and I'm glad for them. They fill a niche on that continuum of care that is important, but to me, like, that shows there's no care in that continuum, and and that, I mean, that's where I can't be part of that. You know, I, I refuse to be part of that.
0: Yeah. I just want to thank both of you for joining me today and for sharing Phil with us and and for our audience and and if nothing else, uh, I'm just uh, privileged to have met both of you and we mm, all have likewise. a similar mission and share so much in common and and I just want to thank you for your openness today. Thank you so much for thank having you. Us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Grieving Out Loud. For resources for families and how to get help, just go to emilyshope.foundation. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review. Thank you.